thank you again to Colin for leading and for all the students who took part. And the many students are involved every Sunday and making uh, other students feel welcome. And thank you also to the musicians for leading us in our music this morning. Four young men, students together at one of the leading universities, training to be elite members of their society and nation. To all outward appearances, they were just like any of the other students who had gathered in this great city from many parts of the world. Yet they were different, radically different, for they were bound together by an ideology that was totally at odds with the culture in which they lived and contrary to the nation for which they were being prepared to serve. Their names have been preserved down the years so that even today people remember them rather than any of their contemporaries, their fellow students. Their names are known to all, certainly of my generation. Guy Burgess, Donald McLean, Kim Philby, Anthony Blunt. The Cambridge spies, recruited to the communist cause, while at the university of that name in the 1930s, who rose to positions of eminence in society and influence in government service, and did enormous damage to the security of our nation, which cost many people their lives. Yet for decades, they remained totally undetected. For the strategy of their communist overseers was that they should conceal their real allegiance in order to further their cause. They were called sleepers. 600 years before Christ, four young students found themselves in a similar situation. United by an ideology that was totally at odds with the dominant culture in which they lived. Their names are not so well known unless you happen to be a student of the Bible and familiar with a book in the Old Testament of the Bible that bears the name of one of them. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah or to give them the names by which they were more commonly known at their university, Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But although they share some common characteristics with those four young men at Cambridge, there is one marked difference. They were no sleepers prepared to conceal their identity to further their cause. No, they were prepared to take the risk, the very high risk, of nailing their colours to the mast. And today I want to challenge you, especially, but not exclusively, if you are a student, and to ask you, are you prepared to do the same thing? My challenge to you today, to myself, to all of us, is are you prepared to stand up and be counted? So look with me at the story 
in Daniel chapter 1. It might help to have a Bible open in front of you. It's page 883. And I simply want this morning to identify three themes that emerge in this chapter. Very simply. Here's the first one that you'll find in the first seven verses that introduce the story. The first theme that comes out of this story is what I would call living in an alien environment. Living in an alien environment. You see, these four men in our story did not fill in a yuccas form, first choice, Babylonia University. No. They never wanted to go there. And when they got there, they didn't really want to be there. Their home was in far-off Israel, or the southern bit of it that still remained, what was called Judah. But Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the great superpower of the day, had marched through the Middle East, trampled his way into Jerusalem in the year 605 BC, by our later dating, of course. No one then would have dreamt of such a dating system. Eighteen years later, he would raise the city completely to the ground. But the first time he simply marched in, took over and looted the magnificent temple of the Israelites, carted away the sacred furniture and took it back home and put it in his own temple and museum so everyone could see it. And he also ordered his prime minister to select some of the young people of Israel to take back to Babylonia for further training for his civil service. It was not a pop idol selection process. For those chosen were not done so on the basis of their singing. Didn't come into it. No, only those from the royal family and nobility qualified. And even among them, you had to be a perfect physical specimen with high IQ. And so the four men in question were chosen and carted off to a distant land 500 miles away, maybe by forced march. You can see the map there how they went from Jerusalem north up towards Aleppo and then back down to Babylon. That was the trade route of the day. There is evidence from this period that the young men's age would probably have been around 14 years old when they were selected. Certainly no more than late teens. And these young men, as far as they knew, would never see their homes or their families ever again. They were installed in the royal palace, put through a rigorous program of education in which they were to learn the language and literature of the Babylonians. In short, they were to be re-educated and reprogrammed. King Nebuchadnezzar was a smart cookie. And he knew that training an elite and loyal administration from the local population was a far more effective and a lot cheaper option than leaving a standing occupying army in place to control their disaffected populace. And so these four friends found themselves forced to live in an alien environment, compulsory service in a dominant culture. However, for these four young men, that wasn't the worst thing of all. The most painful thing about living there was not the dominant culture, but the fact that they were living under a dominant religion. You see... The people of Israel were the most privileged nation group on earth. They alone, out of all the nations on earth, this tiny nation had been chosen by God through no merit of their own, 
as an object lesson of what he was like and his character. They'd been chosen by God to be his people, the one true God, besides whom all the other gods in the world were idols, which means, in Hebrew, nothing. They were chosen as God's own people. The Lord rescued this nation from slavery. And he brought them to the land of Canaan, a land flowing with milk and honey. Still today, the phrase rolls off the tongue and everybody knows what you mean by it. Four centuries before this, under their greatest rulers, David and Solomon, their greatest kings, they had ruled a glorious empire that had been the envy of the ancient world and the surrounding nations. But now, their nation and their hopes were in ruins. Where now the promises of God celebrated in song down through the centuries? No wonder the exiles who were forced to go back to Babylon, like these four young men, had to sing a sad and different song. Psalms 137, by the rivers of Babylon. There we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps. For there our captors asked of us. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign country? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my greatest joy. That was how the people felt. These people had been forcibly transported to a strange land. And everywhere these young men looked around them in this incredible city of Babylon, one of the great cities of the ancient world, everything proclaimed the triumph of the Babylonian gods why they were even renamed. Don't have time to go into it, but the names that they were given, these four young men, their Hebrew names all have the name of God or the Lord. El, Yahweh, or A-H at the end of our, I-A-H at the end of their names. They were given Babylonian names instead, after the god Bel and Marduk, the moon and sun and moon gods of Babylonia. Not much point then, mouthing the Lord, he is God, for even a beggar in the street could cry out. What are you doing here then? Who's God won the siege of Jerusalem, eh? And things were only going to get worse, a lot worse, for a long time. Possibly, as far as they could see, forever. No, it's not easy living in an alien environment. The temptation is always to give up and go along with the crowd, to support the winning team, and even more so when there's something in it for you. And these young men were being offered preferment beyond their wildest dreams. Prosperity and education and learning in the most advanced empire on earth, far beyond anything little Israel could ever hope or boast of. Now, this is Student Sunday. Many students here have come to Edinburgh. Not forcibly, I hope. Not route marched up from England or Wales or some part of the world. And you've come here to work, I presume, to learn a lot and to have a good time. To work hard and to play hard. And you hope that at the end of four years, or however many years you're going to be here, a glorious future awaits you with glittering prospects. And I hope you're right. But I have to tell you something this morning. If you are a Christian student, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Master, then Edinburgh is an alien environment. 
Edinburgh is an alien environment which will present you with the enormous temptation to assimilate to the surrounding culture and religion. However, I've got even worse news for you. If you decide to give up and go back home, you'll discover wherever you come from, it is just the same. In the UK, whatever of the 30 countries that were listed here this morning, and one or two people I know just didn't stand up at all, there's one or two more than that, but wherever you're from, there's an alien environment for the Christian. The New Testament of the Bible has a word that describes this alien environment. It's the word world. It uses the word world in different contexts, but it uses it to describe the alien world, not the physical world, but the moral world of values and ideas, which, because it's a fallen world, inhabited by fallen human beings, is totally at variance at its heart with the kingdom of God and the kingdom of his son, Jesus Christ. It has totally different values. Now, you only have to spend a few hours in front of a television screen to prove this to be a reality. To see what kind of values are dominant in our culture. Focus on self, a desire for wealth and fame, an assertion of rights, not responsibilities, the pursuit of pleasure and fulfilment at all costs. And underpinning our society, although people wouldn't call it this, is our religion. A religion in which man has made God in his own image instead of vice versa. In which this life is all there is, where death is the end of everything. So if that is the case, make the most of life. Look out for number one. Have a great time because any time you could fall over or be knocked over, anything could happen to you. Have a great time because this life is all there is. And when you're dead, you're dead and that's it. And every billboard and every advert proclaims this message. It is the dominant message of our culture. It's religion. It is the world of Edinburgh and Britain. It is the world of the whole world, though its outward manifestations and religion may vary. And it is this environment which, if you're a Christian, you live, and I tell you, there is no escape from it. And if you read the New Testament, you see this perspective that Christians are people who live in two worlds, who are citizens of two different kinds of countries. We're citizens of Great Britain. I am anyway. The United Kingdom. But if you're a Christian, your citizenship also is in a different place. Your allegiance is in a different place. So Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, writes to Christians living in one of the great Roman provinces. And he writes to them, he says, I write to you as aliens and strangers in the world. 1 Peter 2 verse 11. Paul, the messenger of Jesus Christ, presents the Christians in Rome, the great city in the New Testament, which replaced Babylon, really. Rome, the greatest empire ever. He writes this challenge to them. He says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Don't let it squeeze you in its mould, this world. And John, another of the disciples of Jesus, writes to his fellow Christians, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eyes, the boasting of what he has and does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. 1 John 2, 15 and 16. However, let's be honest. It's hard not to love it when it seems to be so appealing. It's hard not to love it when it seems to offer so much. You see... The stupid pharaohs of the world fail to realize that whips and forced labor more than often serve only to unite slaves to a cause. 
the smart Nebuchadnezzars recognize that carrots rather than sticks often do the job much better and get donkeys to go where you want them to go. One writer comments, decisions are difficult in proportion to the attractions that exist for making the wrong decision. So, do you love the world or do you love Christ? The thing is, you can't do both. As Jesus himself said, you can't serve two masters. You'll love one and hate the other. You'll have to choose. And often when you leave home and go to a new place, it's where your allegiance really stands out. It's where you have to make a choice and you've not got any constraints of those around you who know you and know what you're going to do if you step out of line. I remember the first year I came to this church about 11 years ago and I'd been here almost nine months, I think it was, and I went to preach in another church in Scotland in the north somewhere. And a lady came up at the end and she said, oh, you're Peter Granger, aren't you? You're the new pastor of Charlotte Chapel. I said, that's right. She said, my daughter's studying in Edinburgh and she's been coming to your church regularly, but she hasn't heard you preach yet. And I really didn't know what to say. I could have said, well, I've preached every Sunday for the last eight months because I was on my own when I first came here. Or do I say to her, well, actually, that's very surprising. I just think I said something fairly polite and smiled and said, that's good. You have to make a choice. And these four young men are placed in a palace in the fast stream of education with glittering prizes ahead of them But soon they are forced to make a choice. And the second thing I want to say about this story is, not just living in an alien environment, but secondly, taking a principal stand. And you'll see that in verses 8 to 14. Look how verse 7 begins, after the introduction and the background and all that stuff. It says, but, after all that, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And our immediate question is, why? Why did he choose this particular issue to take a stand on? Why didn't he say, my name's Dan, none of this belty shatter stuff for me? Why did he not say, I don't want to study here at all, so I'm just going to do an England team job and we'll boycott it all, you know? Why on this particular point? And intriguingly, he didn't opt out of the world, He didn't opt out of his studies, drop out and go to Bible college, if he could have done it in those days. No, he went so far, but there came a point, there came a point when he said, enough and no more. No, I won't do this. Now, let me tell you that no one knows exactly why this particular issue was so crucial to Daniel. The best guess we can make is that the royal food and wine were part of the religion of the Babylonians and that they were sacrificed to the gods, their gods, before they were given to the people to eat as a sign of God's blessing on them. In the ancient world and still in many parts of the world to which some of you come from, uh, eating and drinking is far more than just eating and drinking. There are many parts of the world that they don't live in carry-out culture, you know? When you sit down with someone, you identify with them and all that they stand for. And when you accept an invitation to hospitality, it means more than, yeah, I'll come along and drop in sometime. It means identifying with the culture. That's the most likely point. 
you, you see, the issue in some ways seems quite unimportant, doesn't it? What you eat and drink. I'm sure that many of Daniel's fellow students, from Israel probably, from Judah as well, would have pointed out, look, it's just food and wine. And they'd have advanced pragmatic arguments about, just think how much good you could do for your nation if you just keep quiet and go along with it. And think also about the consequences if you decide not to eat and drink it. You could be in real bad trouble. And the king chops your head off and there's all your influence gone. So why not just go along with it at this particular point? But no such argument swayed Daniel's decision. In verse 7, literally, Daniel purposed in his heart, the heart is the center of your being, what you really are as a person, in his heart, at this point, he purposed that he would not defile himself. Whatever was behind the decision, the key word is defile, which suggests more than just ceremonial or outward defilement, but moral and inward pollution, which the act of eating and drinking would signify. The issue is something which defiles. Now, notice something you can miss easily, and when I prepared this, I then went back and, and, and added this because it just struck me again forcibly. Notice that Daniel's decision was a refusal. It was something negative that he refused to do. I sort of feel today that, particularly among Christians, there's a great reluctance to do anything that might be perceived as negative. And I understand why. People say, well, Christian faith is not just a list of do's and don'ts. Which sounds great. It isn't. It's trusting in Christ simply for your salvation. But listen, once you become a Christian, your whole life's a list of do's and don'ts. You want to come to the student lunch after the service today? You're going to have to make a decision. Plenty of food, and it's a great menu, and I'm going to encourage you to stay if you're a student, and if you're an international student, bring your family and your friends along, whoever it is. If you're not a student, sorry, there's not enough for all of you, but you're going to make a choice. And some of you will say, no, I'm going to go home. Watch England, slaughter Georgia in the World Cup. Well, whatever reason you might have, you're going to make a decision. You know, when God gave the Ten Commandments, they're full of negatives. You shall not lie, steal, commit adultery, covet. There are negatives. They're unavoidable. And so, if you are a Christian, there will come points in your life where you'll have to say, no, I won't do that. It would defile me. Now, immediately you want to know a list of things that I think would defile you. And I simply say to you this, if you are a Christian, no matter how long you've been a Christian, or if you are a new Christian, if you're living in the world of Edinburgh as I am, the more difficult questions, I think, are what to say yes to, not what to say no to. Because our world is so at variance with the kingdom of Christ and, the, and what the Lord Jesus Christ stands for and what, what he asks of us. Really. There are so many things. Listen, Okay, let me give you some examples. You want examples, all right? You're in a student flat, and you're the only Christian in the student flat, all right? And next Saturday they say, great, let's get this video out, and we'll all watch it together. And it's one of those, whatever they call them, X-rated ones, okay? Now, you're in that flat, and you think, I've got to get along with these guys, so I'll just sit there and watch it with everybody else. It will defile you. At some point, you're going to have to say, as nicely as you can, and we'll come to it in a moment, I'm sorry, I won't watch that. It 
compromises my faith as a Christian. Now, you may be the odd person out in your flat. I mean, you may cost you something, but I'm simply saying at some point, you've got to say no. You'll find that most people today, all the statistics show this to be true, sleep with various people before they get married, if they ever get married. Most students do, okay? This is the real world, all right? The older folk may be embarrassed by this, I'm sorry, but this is a reality. At some point, you're going to have to say, I'm sorry, no, I don't do that. And I don't even have my girlfriend staying in the same room because we're not doing anything. Give up. I'm prepared to take a stand at this point. How are you going to spend your Sundays? Your friend will say to you tomorrow, tomorrow what did you do yesterday? And you go, well, I just went out for a meal. And I went to church because I'm a Christian. This is God's day. Okay, you, you, okay, I'm not worried about how you word it and there's an opportunity and way of saying it, but at some point you've got to nail your colors to the mast and tell people, I don't mean leaping up, you know, run home from Charlotte Chapel with your Bible and bang on the door and say, I've been to church. You know, that'd be great, yeah, that really, lead balloon time, you know. <laughs> but, but you won't need to, there's just so many issues. And if you take a stand at the beginning, it will be, you need to start at the beginning, because if you don't, you'll be compromised. You really will. I mean, th- there are even little things. Um, okay, I keep talking about examples. Let me tell you something I did when I was a student, and, and I'm not saying that everybody should do this. But I, re- I resolved when I was a student that I would never study on Sundays. It would be a different day, it would be the Lord's Day, and even if I got finals the next morning, I would not study on Sundays. Now, that was a principle stand. I took all I can say, the Word of God says, those who honor me, I will honor it's a challenge. Everybody else has probably heads in the books. Okay, actually, it may not be a bad thing to have a day off before the big exam anyway. And I'm not saying all of you should do that. All I'm saying is, think about it. Some of you come to church every week and everybody says, oh, you're a poor student, so don't bother putting anything in the offering because we all know you're a poor student. Listen, let me simply tell you, all I can say is I've proved God over the years that when I was younger, I determined to tithe. Now, I know Christians say, oh, legalism. Giving a tenth of everything to God. Oh, you don't want to do that kind of stuff. Don't be legalistic. Give less. What they really mean. People say to me, Pastor, you know, when people ask me, do you believe in tithing? They never ask me because they want to know if it's okay to give more. (laughs) They want to know, is it okay to give less? And how little can you give and get away with it? Listen, I tell you, we've been missionaries. Have no money. You've always given God what it is. So if you come regularly to this church, yes, if you're a guest, you're our guest. That's fine. I'm not expecting you to pay for being here. It's not for entertainment. But if you worship regularly here, give to the Lord's work. If it's not here, give to something else. And God will honour that. And you're giving. You see, the small things define who we are. And that's how you begin. Start small when you're young. But notice something that I've touched on also. Not just what Daniel did, but how he did it. He didn't make a big song and dance about it. He privately went to the official and said, look, excuse me, sir, I've got a problem here that compromises my faith. And notice something else very interesting. He'd already developed a relationship with this man 
and God had caused him to be regarded favourably in his eyes so that he didn't just dismiss him out of hand and say, that's that awkward Jew and there's no way you're going to do that. No, he built a relationship. We need to build relationships so that people understand and respect your convictions when you take them. You see, there's a fine line between standing firm and being pig-headed. Is there not? And there are ways in which we provoke confrontation rather than facilitate negotiation. Jesus said you need to be shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves, Matthew 10:16. Yet there may at times come a time for real confrontation, but pursue the path of negotiation first. And that is what Daniel did when he went to the chief official with his problem, with his, with his proposed solution. Sinclair Ferguson uh, writes, There is something Christ-like about such a spirit. We do not need to be either gauche or obnoxious to be faithful to God. Notice one final thing Daniel did. Uh, when I was a child, we sang a hymn about Daniel and all the old people, older people of my age. We're all old now. I'm old and we're all getting older. You'll all know what the song was, you know? Dare to be a Daniel, dare to stand alone, dare to have a purpose firm, and dare to make it known. Okay, I won't sing it for you, but you, you know what the song is about? There would come a time when Daniel had to stand alone in the lion's den, for example. But he didn't do so on this occasion. Although he was a spokesman, he was supported by his three friends. He stood together with them. And I'm sure that these young men, in this alien environment, faced with this challenge, I, I, I guess they talked long and hard before they took this very considerable step to stand up and be counted. And I'm sure they prayed long and hard about it. And they prayed while Daniel went to meet with his chief official. And whatever stand you take as a Christian, try not to take it alone. There's a fine balance between only having Christian friends and not having any Christian friends. You need both. But, but it's a hard balance. But make sure whatever you do that you're not just standing alone as a Christian. Find other Christians. People who will, will, sometimes they'll come out of the woodwork when you take a stand. I remember my daughter, has been a final year, and I'm still embarrassed if she ever did this take, but her first year she was put in hall in Aberdeen at Robert Gordon. She, she folded it, she said, Dad, I'm the only Christian here. Stand up, count it. She folded it for the evening, she said, one of the other girls came to me and said, I'm a Christian too, but I didn't like to say anything. Stand up, count it. But find other Christians. Join a church if you come to Charlotte Chapel. We'll give you a great welcome and look after you as best we can. But really, my priority is not whether you come to Charlotte Chapel or not, then how many students come to Charlotte Chapel. My priority is that you find a church where you belong, where you're accountable, where you're cared for, where you're pastored, where you're taught. Whatever church it is, get plugged into the CU or that Bible study group or whatever it is. In fact, Jesus said all you need is two or three. And he said, if two of you agree about anything concerning my kingdom, it shall be done for you. That, that's not a carte blanche for anything, but it means taking God's kingdom seriously. You find it in Matthew 18, verses 19 and 20. So Daniel makes his proposal on behalf of himself and his friends, a 10-day test. You see, it says to the official, okay, let's put a test in, 10 days, and at the end of it, we'll review it. It leaves a way out. Diplomatic. So notice a third theme, living in an alien environment, taking a principal stand, and thirdly and finally, in the last few verses, relying on a faithful God. You see, it's not really these young men who are being tested, and it's certainly not the royal chef. 
No, it's the Lord who's put to the test. And so often we fail to prove God because we never put him to the test. We never step out on a limb. We never risk our reputation or our finances or whatever else it might be. And they put the Lord to the test and God proves, as he always does, to be faithful. You see, the message of Daniel, the great message of this great book, which is little read today, but you, you profit from reading from it. The, the great message of the book of Daniel is that the Lord is sovereign. He alone is the Lord. And you can be living in an alien environment where it looks like the empire of Babylon rules over everything. In fact, realities can be very deceptive. We need to learn that God is sovereign in human experience. Contrary to what is expected on their diet of vegetables and water, at the end of ten days they're noticeably healthier and better nourished. That must have been appreciable to note the difference after ten days. Notice that, in addition to that, the Lord gives them greater understanding and knowledge. And Daniel is given this remarkable gift of interpreting dreams and visions of every kind, which will prepare him for what lies ahead. So that when you get to chapter 2, in the great chapter 2, at the end of it, even Nebuchadnezzar says to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. But you see, it began with such a small thing. It began with, I won't eat this food and drink this wine. And Daniel is installed in a place of influence, preserved through many further and greater tests of faith by the Lord. In fact, you can miss the very last verse of the chapter. You know what the last verse of the chapter says? And Daniel remained there in his position of prominence. He actually became first minister. He remained there until the year, the first year of King Cyrus. Do you know when that was? Nearly 70 years later. In fact, he saw the whole Babylonian dynasty fall. He then saw the Median dynasty rise and fall. And then Cyrus the Persian came along and Daniel was still in place and the Lord was still sovereign. Yet it began with this one small test. Sinclair Ferguson, who sadly has left the Tron in Glasgow now and gone over the water. Can't see why their needs are greater than ours, but never mind. We'll go into that. Helpfully comments that all too often we see our trials and temptations as isolated nightmares while God sees them from a different perspective. I thought this was helpful, what he writes in his book on Daniel. Our trials and temptations are important and connected punctuation marks in the biography of grace God is writing in our lives. They are part of the tapestry he is weaving in history. He uses them to build up our strength and to prepare us to surmount greater obstacles, perhaps even fiercer temptations. And who knows what God is preparing some of you for. Ah, you, you've come here to study and get a good degree. Great. Work as hard as you can and do the best you can. But God has a different purpose, well, a greater purpose, that through that you might be used by him. You might get to know him better while you're here. And who knows what lies ahead of you in the future? Who knows what God is preparing for you? You say, I'm the only one in my flat as a Christian. Great, if you weren't, there'd be nobody. The only one in my course, as far as I can tell, is a Christian. Well, there would be nobody if you weren't there. Let's pray for some more. And as you prove God in small things, these small things, God will use you in big things. He's able to do, says Paul, immeasurably more than all you ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within you. Ephesians 3, 20, 21. God is sovereign in human experience, but he's also sovereign in human history. 
The message of the book of Daniel, as we've said, is that the Lord is sovereign. And these four young men in Babylon needed to know that because to all appearances it looked like he wasn't. Do you notice the opening verses? In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered the king into his hands with the articles in the temple. You ask Nebuchadnezzar, he said, the Lord had nothing to do with it. Listen, it was my God who gave me the triumph. But he was wrong. It was the Lord who did it. Well, the king did it, but the Lord did it. God works through human agency. The Lord even allowed these sacred objects in the temple that he had installed as his instruction. They've been beautifully crafted over centuries. And the Lord allowed these Babylonians, worshipping other gods, to trample through the temple, to rip them out and take them home and stick in their own temple and in their own museums. To think that their gods had wrong. He allowed them to think that their gods had won. But they were wrong. For where are the temples of Babylon today? They're only ruins, those that remain, that tourists trample through with no regard whatsoever for what was once conducted in these places. And let's face it, anybody here worship Bel or Marduk? Never heard of them, yet in the ancient world they were the gods that everybody worshipped and said, wow, these are the gods. They're just idols. Nothing. Don't be taken in by appearances or discouraged by apparent reverses, for God is the sovereign Lord in human experience and in human history, despite appearances. Now, finish with the greatest example of this in human history. On the darkest day, the day we call Good Friday, when a man hung on a cross, the Son of God, and it appeared that evil had triumphed. And yet, through that, God worked his sovereign purposes. The greatest example of this principle of God's sovereignty is in the death of Jesus. That's why John in his Gospel calls it the glorification of Jesus. It's just a contradiction in terms. Glorification and crucifixion, they just don't go together. Are they doing God's economy? And on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples and Peter went out and preached this fantastic sermon, he said to the people, those who had crucified Jesus, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. Notice what he said. You did it, but God did it. You planned it, but God planned it. That's amazing. And he concludes by saying, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ, Acts 2.36. And he calls on them, as the message still goes out today from this church and throughout the world, to repent, to turn from your own way of life, and to confess Christ as Savior and Lord, so that your allegiance supremely is to him and to his kingdom above all else. You see, kingdoms may rise and fall. Listen, communism is a 70-year historical blip as far as we can tell. It's come and gone. But God's kingdom lasts forever. God's plan centered on his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is still in place and nothing can prevent it. And you see, the Bible's got this wonderful timeline that runs through. And you come to the last book of the Bible and the last chapters, and you know what you find? Babylon is fallen. Symbol for all that stands against God and the kingdom of God. Revelation 18, Revelation 19. Babylon falls. The kingdom of Christ lasts forever. Great verse, Revelation 11:15. The people sing 
and say and shout, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. So, are you a follower of Jesus? Is your allegiance to him? And if so, does anybody know about it? You see, there are some Christians who think, I'll be like those Cambridge spies. I'll be a sleeper for Christ. I'll conceal my identity. And when Christ comes, I'll emerge from the woodwork and claim him as my own. Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me before men, I will be ashamed before them when my Father returns. But whoever confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father in heaven. So I ask you, are you a sleeper? Or are you a soldier of Christ? And I say to you today, are you prepared Stand up and be counted. This is God's word for me, students, for each one of us here this morning. Let's bow in a moment's breath.